We're in the sixth week of a series entitled Boundaries, in which we are looking at our relationships. And really what we've been doing is, uh, the series has been inspired by this book. It's called Boundaries by Henry Cloud and John Townsend. And it's not to say that what we're doing is not inspired by the Bible. Of course it is. We are looking at what the Bible has to say about our relationships. But this book has been a driving force in helping me uh, understand boundary issues and how to help other people through them. And the truth is, that's the majority of the situations that I have to deal with in counseling. And so it seemed wise to just talk about it. Over these past weeks, we started by looking at at defining what a boundary is. And a boundary is nothing more than a relational uh, defining marker that determines what you are and what you are not responsible for. In week two, we looked at how boundaries develop. And boundaries, uh, boundary problems, that is, how boundary problems develop. And really, they develop when we are in an atmosphere of insecurity we do not have unconditional love. When we don't feel unconditionally loved, we have to squeeze other people to make them love us. But I've noticed that never, ever works. In week three, we looked at some of the laws and myths of boundaries. And over the past couple of weeks, we've been looking at how to apply the principles of boundaries to our relationships in the specific ways. First, we look at family. Then last week, we looked at friends, and now we come to one of the most fun of all the topics, the marriage relationship, boundaries in our spouses. And to do this, uh, I want to ask you to turn in your Bibles with me to Ephesians chapter 5. You can find the passage uh, in the Bible in front of you. It is the blue book. It looks just like this, and it's on page 949. If you do not have a Bible with you, you can just keep this one if you'd like. It's our gift to you. We'd love to be able to do that. We are a church. We freely give Bibles out part of the blessing of who we are. Um, But as we go through this, you might be having going something through your mind like this. I'm not married. How does this apply to me? And so to that, before we read the text, you'll notice it in just a moment. I want to promise that you that if you aren't married, in fact, even if you never were to marry, that this sermon would be highly applicable to you. For you're about to see in the text we're about to read that this topic is about marriage, but it's not just about marriage. It is about the relationship that we have with Jesus, the relationship we have with Jesus. So with no further ado, Ephesians chapter 5, verses 21 through 33, let me show you what I mean. Paul says, (laughs) written 2,000 years ago, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church his body, of which he is the Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church, without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies, For he who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated his own body, just as, uh, uh, but they feed their body and they take care of it, just as Christ does for the church. For we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery. But I am actually talking about Christ in the church. However, each one of you must also love his wife as he loves himself. And the wife must respect her husband. 
So I want to open up by showing you two core principles, and then we're going to move from that, and I'm going to talk a little bit about boundaries in the marriage relationship, and then I'm going to bring it all back together with the main question that we're all asking ourselves right now, probably, and then we'll finalize it, our time together, uh, in just a moment by looking about exactly what does Jesus have to do with the marriage relationship. But first, two core principles from this text, and they're both really fun, and we're going to enjoy it. The first is, marriage is intended to unite two people into one. You can't help but see this as you look at Ephesians chapter 5. Marriage is intended to unite two people into one. If you notice with me in your text and you look at verse 31, the text says, the two will become one flesh. And the preacher, he says at the weddings, right, there's this old language, that which God hath joined together, let no man pull asunder, whatever that means. The two becoming one flesh is a unique thing in marriage. It is the design that Paul has for it, but it also makes things a little bit more complicated when it comes to boundary issues. As Henry Cloud says in the book Boundaries, if there were ever a relationship where boundaries could get confused, it is marriage whereby design, God intends us to become one flesh. What does this mean, two people becoming one flesh? Obviously, when two people get married and they stand before the preacher, the preacher does not say the words and all of a sudden, like magnets, they go together and become Siamese twins. We know that's not the case. So what is the text talking about? We retain, when we get married, our individual emotions and physicality. We don't become the other person. The text is talking about intimacy and togetherness. That's what it's talking about. But notice that the text says the two will become. I have noticed that the process of a marriage becoming intimate and close is not an automatic one. It takes time, and it doesn't just happen with time. In the same way that if you went through something as a child that has haunted you and still comes back to you, you need to see a counselor. Time doesn't make that stuff right. you got to deal with your emotional baggage. In the same way that if you're overweight and you want to lose weight, time does not make you slim down. You've got to eat less and move a little bit more, right? And in the same way, our marriage relationship does not become one flesh just because the preacher says, you're husband and wife. In all of our decisions, God's design for us is to become one flesh, but we I like to think of it as we must make decisions that are one flesh type of decisions. And in our lives, we can make one flesh type decisions in our marriage, or we can make decisions of distance. And this uh, this principle applies to any relationship. If you have kids, and one of your kids gets awesome gifts for Christmas, and the other one gets garbage, don't be surprised that the one kid doesn't like you as much as the one that gets awesome gifts. If you're in married, if you're a married couple and every Saturday and Sunday you spend the entire day watching football, do not be surprised when your wife does not feel as though she wants to be all hot and heavy all the time, right? Can this be said in church? Of course it can. I am the preacher. I speak. You are gracious to listen. Yes? When we make decisions of distance, this is so simple. I don't know why in the church world we mess this up. Distance ensues. But I cannot tell you how many conversations I've had with husbands who say, my wife should love me better. Okay? 
What do you think the natural reaction, I've, I've said this to people, what would be the natural response that your wife would have to you with the way you have treated her? Well, exactly what she's doing, but that's not godly. <laughs> you never say this. This is why I'm a terrible counselor, but you want to say, okay, idiot. Good luck for you. I have a strain of thought that I'm going to resist. The decisions we make either lead to greater intimacy or they lead to greater distance. If you're in a relationship where you constantly make decisions of distance, then don't be surprised when you experience distance. As we saw it is in week three, it is the law of sowing and reaping at work. But marriage is designed to unite two people into one. God has designed it so we might experience unconditional love and intimacy within marriage. But the second thing we see from the text, it's a core principle, and you can't help but see it. In fact, the text almost seems as though it's confused. Is it talking about uh, the husband and the wife, or is it talking about Christ and the church? And the second principle is this. Marriage is intended to mirror the relationship between Christ and the church. Marriage is intended to mirror the relationship between Christ and the church. This concept is directly connected to what I just spoke about, making those one flesh type of decisions. And in fact, the text even goes on to highlight two behaviors that are necessary for making one flesh decisions. And those two behaviors are obvious throughout the text. In fact, perhaps maybe as you saw them, you began to get a little hot in the neck as you read them, but they are love, that one doesn't bother us, and submission, that one can. Love and submission. And I promise I'm going to address the whole submission issue in just a moment. But for now, I just want to say as clearly as I possibly can that love and submission are the responsibility of both the husband and the wife. Love and submission are the responsibility of both the husband and the wife. When I was... um, when I was getting ready to get married, I grew up in a really small, very fundamentalist, conservative church, and I proposed to my wife, that's how it works, and we started to get ready for the marriage, and we did premarital counseling with, um, I don't know, I, I'm a little irreverent, but my weirdo pastor, you know? And so I knew it wasn't going to go well, because I knew my wife and I knew my pastor. So this is exactly what happened, and I don't make this up for this sermon. I promise you this happened. So it was the first session It was a really dark and dingy office. (laughs) And uh, the pastor turns to us, and his opening lines in our premarital counseling was, it was actually to Sarah, and he said, Sarah, for your entire life, you will be under the authority of a man. Up until this time, when I pronounce you husband and wife, you've been under the authority of your father. And when you get married, you will be under the authority of Bill. And then I promised this happened. That would be bad enough. But then he looked at Sarah with his like grandfatherly smile and said, isn't that great? (laughs) And I've just ignored just about everything he told me in premarital counseling and everything's gone well so far for me. (laughs) What a bonehead, right? I mean, I don't know how else to say this. But yet somehow the church has messed this whole submission thing up so badly that we talk about it like this and pretend like all is well through it all. All is well with my soul. If you act like that, 
all will not be well. Maybe your soul is fine, but your household is not. Submission, biblical submission, is not like this at all. Submission is not the sole responsibility of the wife in the same way that love is not the sole responsibility of the husband. Both are to love and to submit to each other. Christ, he is the hero of the entire Christian story. Christian, you know, Christ is in it. Christ loved us enough, humanity, to submit his life for the benefit of all. And those of us who've seen the beauty of what Jesus has freely done for us and choose to accept the free gift of salvation that he offers us strictly by faith or by grace, and we accept it by faith, we become a part of the church. And we who are Christians, the church, are meant in our marriages to mirror the relationship that Christ has with his church. The love and submission. And if we do this in our marriages, we will start to slowly experience the process of becoming one flesh which leads to incredible intimacy, maybe even a little hot and heavy. But this intimacy only happens as each person takes up their individual responsibility to make one flesh type decisions. So what are we responsible for in marriage? I've got three things I want to go through with you sort of briefly. And as I go through them, at times they will sound like they are the opposite of submission. But as I go through them, I hope to show you in the end that you have misunderstood submission if this does not sound submissive. These three things are things that you must do to make one flesh decision you must take responsibility for. And they're really hard. The first is, in marriage, you are responsible for your own feelings. Your feelings are your feelings. No one else can take responsibility to communicate and express them. And taking responsibility for our own feelings is one of the most important things or elements in the process of a marriage becoming one flesh. In the book Boundaries, the authors describe a counseling session that one of them had. And I just want to read it to you so that you can kind of hear this conversation. And it expresses the idea of our need to express our feelings to our spouses. And I know for guys, even for me, well, even for me, what am I saying? Of course I'm a guy. Um, I know guys don't really like to express feelings too much. Sometimes in church I've talked about it. My wife really likes to have what's called couch time, where we just sit on the couch and talk to each other, which sounds like driving a nail through my skull. But I do it maybe like four or five times a year. And I'm trying to do it better. We're going to do it tonight. We did it last Sunday. We're working on it. But we do not like to sit around and express feelings, do we? But I want to read you this conversation, and I'm going to, it'll illustrate so perfectly why expressing our feelings, it doesn't have to be on a couch, but why it is so critical. The counseling session begins, and they are there, the husband and wife, because the wife is very concerned and deeply upset about her husband's drinking problem. And here's the conversation that ensues. The wife says, I feel like he doesn't think about what he's doing. I feel like he 
And at this point, the counselor interrupts the wife and says, no, you are not describing your feelings. You're actually, you're actually evaluating his drinking, how he's feeling. How do you feel about it? The wife says, well, I feel like he doesn't care when he drinks. And the, the counselor interrupts her again and says, no, now you're not evaluating, but you are just saying what you think about him, that he doesn't care. I want to know what you feel about it. And the wife at this point begins to cry. And she says, I feel, I feel alone and I feel afraid. And the husband turns to her, and this would be great if it always ended like this, but he says, I never knew that that made you feel that way. I would never want to make you feel that way. And the process begins where now they've owned up to their feelings and now they can actually start to work with what's really going on instead of the wife just making him feel like he's a loser and being judged. But, but expressing our feelings puts us in a place of incredible vulnerability, doesn't it? It's great in this story, but have you ever expressed your feelings to somebody and had them just run over you like they didn't even care? And in a marriage relationship, it's kind of like a point of no return, isn't it? If you express your feelings and your spouse doesn't care, where do you go from there? And that's the person that you've got to like make lunches with so that your kids get to school and have something to eat. And you've got to arrange transportation with. And that's the person you share a bed with at night. And it is so scary to think about being vulnerable like that. But the feelings that you have are your feelings and only you can express them. And if you don't, if you're not willing to risk rejection for the sake of being vulnerable, then you'll never experience that intimacy of being one flesh the way God designed marriage to be. If you feel like your emotional problems are someone else's problem, then you'll never deal with them and you'll be stuck with them for years. Even if the emotional problems that you have are the direct result of someone else's behavior, they are still your emotions. And so you have to take responsibility to deal with your feelings and communicate them and start to make them right, especially in the marriage relationship. The second thing that we are responsible for is our desires. I've noticed in marriage that desires would never be a problem if our desires never conflicted. But just as I said, we don't become Siamese twins. We don't have this like mind link either where all of a sudden, you know, I like romantic comedy all of a sudden movies when the preacher says the two are husband and wife. And I've noticed my wife doesn't like Michigan football, which won yesterday, and Ohio State lost, which is just as good as a Michigan win. <laughs> I'm tempted to go on with my feelings on that subject, but I won't. <laughs> we are weird when it comes to sports, aren't we? But our desires conflict, don't they? Imagine this hypothetical but really, really common scenario. The wife is angry because the husband is coming home from work late. And she feels disappointed because she wants to spend time with him. Or maybe she's not even concerned about spending time with him. Maybe she just wants a little respite from taking care of the kids which is legitimate, by the way. 
Those little guys are hard to manage. So she's upset, but the husband on the other side, and that's her desire. He's home, he's engaged, taking care of the kids, maybe even having some couch time. The husband, on the other hand, feels this intense pressure to do his job well. And he's not going to Eric's office, you know, at night and just hanging out with the buddies and drinking. He's actually at work doing work, you know. But he feels this intense pressure and he knows he's getting home late and he even knows that he's letting his wife down, but he's afraid to not work because he doesn't feel like he cannot work. These are both legitimate desires. The desire for the husband to take care of his family and to do a good job with his career and the desire for the wife to get a break and to have a little time of engagement where the, the husband is clocked in, you know? But notice that they are conflicting desires. Both are legitimate. And the wife could say that the husband is being selfish, but in the same way, couldn't the husband argue that the wife is being selfish? It's not an issue of good or bad, selfish or unselfish. It's an issue of conflicting desires. And marriage is all about communicating those conflicting desires. Problems arise when we do not, in our marriage, talk about our desires and figure out a way to fix it. Problems arise when we make other people responsible for our desires and hold them accountable and punish them when they do not meet them. The third thing that we are responsible for in our marriages is our limits. Love, the very definition of biblical Christ-centered love is that it is unconditional and that it is freely given. But we must be aware, and this happens to all of us, not just in the sphere of marriage, but in every sphere, we must be aware of ourselves enough to know when we have moved past the point of giving out of love to the point of giving out of resentment. And when we give out of resentment, we may say, well, it's not loving to say no. Well, it's not loving to be resentful and bitter towards the people who you don't want to do the things that you feel entrapped to do for them either, is it? And so we need to be aware when we are giving out of love and we've moved past that and now we're giving out of resentment. Imagine a husband and a wife, and this can go either way. It can be the honeydew list or it can be the chore list. And the, the wife has this huge list of projects around the house that she wants, and she wants everything to be perfect. And I've got to be honest, I'm pretty bad at this myself. I'll make chore lists, and I'll tell my wife, it would be good today if you did this amount of laundry, this amount of cleaning of the dishes, and, you know? And we have these, these things that we expect. And it's okay to talk those things through, but it is also okay, okay for the other person to say, this is the time I have. This is what I've got going. And here are the limits of what I can and cannot do. In marriage, as in any relationship, other people are not tools to accomplish our desires, but they are our companions and our friends and our wives and our husbands. And only when we can put limits on what we give can we stop giving towards the point of resentment and we give unto the point of love. Waiting for our spouse, which is what most people do, to realize that they're asking too much and then resenting it when they don't is a really bad idea. We must be responsible to clearly communicate our own limits. It is our responsibility. Setting boundaries on our feelings, our desires, our limits, do not violate the biblical principle 
of submission. It may sound like it does, but you have misunderstood submission then. And I want to help clear up that confusion. What about submission? This is really where all the fun in the sermon lies. It's the most controversial part, so that's the most enjoyable. Here we go. What about submission? Submission is not meekly and passively doing whatever another person wants. It's not. If we were to understand a biblical definition of submission, we would say that submission, according to the Bible, is actively choosing to yield your desires for the benefit of another. It is willful, actively choosing to yield your desires for the benefit of another. To further flesh this out, I want to help you see the difference between the way the Bible sees submission and the way that our culture or our secular society sees submission when this language is used. In fact, even if you were to go to the the Webster's Dictionary, you would look it up, and the dictionary definition of submission would be something like this, when an inferior yields to the authority of a greater. But this is not the way the Bible sees submission. And it is modeled for us very clearly in Jesus. Let me help you see this. Secular submission is limited, but biblical submission is universal. What I mean by this is that secular submission sees submission as a lesser to a greater, what a lesser offers the greater. The lesser is the employee, and so he offers it to his boss. He gets coffee or whatever. The Bible sees submission as universal. It is something that all owe each other. And I know that sounds crazy, but Jesus modeled this himself in his very incarnation. When he uh, became human, we who are Christian believe that Jesus existed from eternity past and that there came a point in time through the will of God and his obedience to it that he became man, that he was born of the Virgin Mary, that he lived a sinless and perfect life and that he eventually willfully died on the cross for our sins and that had the power over death and rose from the dead. But Jesus did this all voluntarily and out of his own will. We know that he didn't even want to do it in some sense because of his prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. Father, if there be any way, let this cup pass from me, but nevertheless, not your will. Not my will, but your will be done. Jesus modeled it for us in his Uh, last night with his disciples, when Jesus, God made flesh, took the example and told his disciples the lesser, or uh, the greater must serve the lesser. If you would be great in the kingdom of God, you must serve your fellow human. And then he modeled it by washing his disciples' feet. Secular submission is limited. It's limited to the inferior serving the greater. But biblical submission is universal. It is something we owe each other. The second thing I want you to see is that secular submission is forced, but biblical submission is voluntary. If the, co- if the boss tells you to go buy coffee, you go buy coffee because he can fire you, right? It is forced. You owe this to me. But biblical submission is voluntary. At any point, Jesus did not have to do what he did. He willfully subjected himself to the will of the Father, and he willfully subjected himself to us 
so that he might die, so that we might be benefited. Third, secular submission is motivated by self-interest, but biblical submission is motivated by love. Why does the, the, the employer send his employee for coffee? He needs caffeine, right? He wants coffee. But biblical submission is motivated out of love, out of acting unconditionally for the benefit of another person. So let me show you these three concepts. Biblical submission is universal, voluntary, and it is motivated out of love. Let me show you how these are explicitly shown in our text. First, I want to point your attention to Ephesians chapter 5, verse 21, where the text says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. What the text is telling us is that both husbands and wives are supposed to practice submission, not just the wives. Submission in the Bible is not limited between the weak to the inferior. If we ever have any doubt of this, we must only look to Jesus. I've already talked about this, but I want to, if you do take notes, write down this passage and this afternoon read it. Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. And some people might uh, have a problem. It is true that submission is never used. That exact word is never used in reference to Christ in the church. The Bible never explicitly says that Christ submits to humanity or submits to the church. But go home this afternoon and read Philippians chapter 2 and don't get caught up on semantics. In Philippians chapter 2, Paul tells us that we are to look out for everybody else's interest, not just ours. And he says, but your attitude should be the same as that of Jesus Christ, who emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant, becoming obedient to death, even the death of a cross. So even if the language and the exact word of submission is not there, we have the entire concept in Philippians chapter 2 of Jesus actively choosing to yield his desires for the benefit of humanity. Second, we see that submission is always the free choice of another person. It is a gift. It is voluntary. The husband doesn't turn to the wife and say, submit to me, I am the man, do it now. He, he allows her to do it. It is a free gift that she offers him and a free gift that he offers her. Look with me in your text. I want to show you this explicitly. Ephesians 5, 24. And I want to help you see this. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. But notice that the comparison is as the church submits to Christ. I've noticed that the history of the church is littered with examples of Christians not following Jesus well. It is littered with individuals, myself included. It is included, littered with corporate churches who do not follow Jesus well. Why does the text say this? Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to the husbands. Because God does not force the church, to submit. He allows us to freely submit and experience the intimacy that comes with it, and he allows us to freely rebel. Some of us have had an impression that God is a guilt God, and if he, we don't do what he says, he will make us feel bad the whole, our whole life. And you've been taught that. That's wrong. That God doesn't exist. Some of you have been taught about an angry God who has a huge bat that is really aerodynamic, and he's waiting to spank you. That God doesn't exist. 
The God of the Bible allows us to freely choose or to freely not choose to serve him. And we offer our submission to God as a gift and we experience the blessing, if we do, of following him. The Bible says, and it's one of my favorite passages, I use it for meditation most nights. The Bible says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. And I've had a lot of times in my life where I have chosen to not submit myself to Jesus, but I've never, ever, ever experienced love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control as a result. Never. And so we can freely choose to submit or we can freely choose to rebel, but we are made for intimacy with Jesus. And just as a husband will not experience intimacy with his wife if he forces submission, neither will we experience intimacy with God if he forced us. And he doesn't. And if that is the way you viewed God, without sounding too dogmatic, you view him wrong. And you've been taught wrong. The third thing we see is that submission should be motivated by love, and it couldn't be more clear in our text. Ephesians 5.25 says, Husbands, love your wife just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. The text goes on to talk about how when the husband does this, he presents his wife, and it intermingles the concept of the church as blameless and holy and pure and unstained. Have you ever noticed that when we treat each other well, it makes other people think we're awesome? If I were to come up and I'd be like, oh, you've got to meet Chris. He is so awesome. You're going to love him. He's the best. You're kind of like, yeah, I guess Chris is pretty awesome. But I go, oh, yeah, I'd really like you to meet Chris. I'm interested to hear what you think about him. He's kind of a weirdo. Oh. And it's so tricky being a pastor, but I can think of a specific relationship I have in my Oh, gee, you know, they they can listen to this stuff. But my own family, not my immediate, not my mom and dad, but a family relationship in one of your extended whatevers where I've got one family member who treats their spouse like he doesn't know up from down. And I start to think, yeah, maybe he's not all that bright. He somehow has made a lot of money and taken good care of his family, but he gets treated like garbage and you kind of start to think he's not all that sharp. We owe When we submit and we treat each other well, voluntarily out of love, it makes us look beautiful to each other, which is exactly what Christ does to us. He makes us beautiful if we understand what he's done for us. You know, when submission problems are raised, this almost always happens because the husband is trying to control his wife. It's maybe uncomfortable, but that's the truth. In fact, in the book Boundaries, Henry Cloud says, We have never seen a submission problem that did not have a controlling husband at its root. Here is a list of questions I'd like husbands to consider and wives as well. Is the husband's relationship with the wife similar to Christ's relationship with the church? If so, the relationship will be full of unconditional love and grace. Second, does the wife feel like her submission is a free choice? Or... Is it something the husband is trying to control and squeeze out of her through law? Here's what it says, honey. Do it. Yeah? 
When we treat our spouses this way, the Bible is real clear about this. When we try to control someone through law, it will always cause feelings of wrath. You can look this up. It's in Romans 4.15. Guilt, James 2.10. And feelings of insecurity and alienation, Galatians 5.4. When a husband is trying to get his wife to submit, he is trying to get her to do something against his, her free will. And submission is no longer biblical submission born out of universal, voluntary love. And that is not what we saw Christ do. In the beginning of my sermon, I said, this, this sermon is really a sermon about Jesus' relationship with us. And I just want to wrap it up, and I want you to see the three themes, voluntary, universal, and love, that exist in this statement. For this is what Christ is willing to do for each and every one of us. Christ willingly gave his life for us all out of love. He never forces us to do anything, certainly not to submit. One of my favorite stories is found in the Old Testament. It's between a couple named Hosea and Gomer, and it typifies the relationship that Jesus has or that God has with his people. Hosea was a prophet. He was unmarried, and God tells him to marry a, uh, a woman, and this woman happened to be a prostitute, which is never what you would think of God asking someone to do, right? Not an ideal match. And Hosea must have had feelings like, a prostitute, what are you telling me to do, God? And he does marry that prostitute, and that prostitute reforms for a time. But eventually she goes back to her old ways, and for years they're separated. And in the book, it's so beautiful, Eventually, she shows up again after years of being away, and she shows up used and abused on the slavery block because she's being sold as a slave, because she's gone back into her life of prostitution, but she's no longer good for that, so somebody's going to buy her for a small amount of money, and I guess she'll cook and clean for him or something. And God says to Hosea, do you still love her? And he says, I still love her. He says, then go and buy her back. And Hosea goes to that, off, that slavery block. He buys her back and wraps her in his love. And the Bible says that's exactly what Christ has done for us. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This whole sermon, this whole text is about husband and wife. And if you take ownership for your feelings, desires, and your limits, you can have a better marriage. But you can only really have a better marriage and better relationships as you understand what Jesus has done for you and as you begin to live out of his unconditional love. And so this is not a sermon where I want something from you, but something for you. And I want you so desperately to have your relationships transformed, but even more, I want you to understand the unlimited love and grace of God who longs for you to be right with him and to experience the love, joy, and peace that is the result. If anything in this sermon has kind of captured your heart or your mind, we have a free gift that we'd like to give anybody who would like one. It's a book called How Good is Good Enough, and it's the most simple and clear uh, explanation of how a person can have a relationship with Jesus. We have a, uh, a stack full of copies in the back in the lobby, and it's a free gift. We'd love to give it to you. It'd take you an hour and a half to read. But we long for every person to experience the love of Jesus and for those of us who have, don't we long to live in the light of its truth and to see ourselves transformed 
in our world around us. Let me pray for you to that end. Father, we ask that you, would, by the power of your Holy Spirit, would enable our hearts to be changed. For we confess that we don't come to you naturally, but we love you simply because you first loved us and modeled how. And so we ask that you would transform us, that you would make us agents of unconditional love, transform our marriages, transform our relationships. And I pray that you would transform our world as a result of what we, uh, what we live out, which is in line with who Jesus was. Every day make us closer to his image and transform the world until it is fully changed one day when Christ returns and makes all things new and all things right. We pray all of this in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. Sing a reprise of the song we sang in the middle of service. And as Bill was praying, like, as God is transforming our hearts, our marriages, our relationships, as we're learning to submit to one another and love one another, um, let's just pray this prayer through it all. Our eyes are on him. So, so let's just close our time of reflection and prayer this morning. Let go my soul and trust in him. The waves and wind still know his name. So let go my soul and trust in him. The waves and wind still know his name. The waves and wind still know his name.
for the power and challenge us to live out what we've just heard. And so as you bow your heads with me and close your eyes, hear the words uh, fall over you and go out this uh, week and live in light of them. Hear them with me as I pray them over you. Now, go into the world in peace. Have courage. Hold on to what is good. Honor all men. Strengthen the faint-hearted. Support the weak. Help the suffering and share the gospel. Love and serve the Lord in the power of the Holy Spirit. And may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. Hey, have a wonderful Sunday. We're so glad you joined us.